This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And Beaver Fit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a war ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is get B 
beaverfit.com. Use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. Welcome to episode 480 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show both Paul Combs and Frank Viscuso. Now, Paul and Frank have written a brand new children's book called Sprinkles the Fire Dog. So we discuss a host of topics. Obviously, we talk about the book, but also we delve into internet trolls and mental health and addiction, leadership, and so many other topics. I urge you to not only listen to this episode, but also go ahead and buy the book. It is absolutely beautiful. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier and easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now of some of the greatest minds on earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, once again, Frank Viscuso and Paul Combs. Enjoy. Well, Paul and Frank, I want to start by saying thank you so much. You have both been on this podcast individually, um, but I am so excited to bring you know what you've got coming out with the book, but also have a discussion. We've got two retirees, well, three top retirees technically, but from different parts of the country and different backgrounds. So I think this is going to be a fantastic conversation. So firstly, just welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, me too. Thank you, James. Beautiful. So I ask this normally anyway, just to, to kind of reconfirm. So Frank, where on planet Earth are we finding you? You're finding me right now. You're finding me on Tom's River, uh, New Jersey. That is obviously where I live. Um, but as far as where I am week to week, you never know. I'll be in Wisconsin soon doing a conference. You know, I, I do a lot of traveling, but but this is home base, the Jersey Shore, as uh, we've and not the one you see on TV, but the Jersey Shore that that we know for real. And it's a beautiful place. Yeah, you wouldn't get on that TV show with your haircut. No, I don't think I would. <laughs> maybe, maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> All right. And then, Paul, same thing. Are we still finding you uh, in Ohio? Yeah, Northwest Ohio, uh, up near Toledo. So quaint little quaint little village uh, surrounded by about 500 miles of corn. Beautiful. I'm actually going to be in Ohio in the North Canton in a couple of weeks. My wife's from oh, there. Oh, okay. So, so I don't think it's that close to you, but uh, yeah, in the same state. Yeah. All right. Well, then I want to kind of, as an icebreaker, go to Paul first, um, because you, since the last time we talked, um, retired, you transitioned out. So I'd love to hear about kind of, you know, your decision to finally pull the trigger on that and then what that experience was like for you. And we got some men and women that seamlessly transition out, especially if they have a kind of a purpose that guides them through and then there's others that struggle with that so kind of tell right. me about your your last couple of years or so well for me i mean it was it was more of a feeling than anything else that it was probably time 
Um, but uh, the, the biggest deciding factor for me was physical. Uh, I had an injury to my hip and uh, through the course of over the last four to five years prior to retirement, uh, the, the medications kept getting in higher and higher dose just to, uh, uh, just to do a shift. So at one point I was taking 3000 milligrams uh, just to be on shift, uh, just to kind of disguise the pain a little bit. And then keeping meds in my, I knew when I started to keep meds in my locker and my gear, that it was probably time to, 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 to step away, you know? So, um, yeah, so it, it, I stepped away after 25 years and uh, I, I wish I would have got into it earlier. I didn't start until I was in my late twenties. Uh, so but uh, the tra- you know it's funny you say transition. I'm not sure I have transitioned much at all. Uh, I, I, I miss it daily. Um, I miss the guys. I miss the kitchen table. You know, I miss I miss I miss the calls. I don't miss a lot of the BS that kind of went with it that, that every department you know that, that has to face. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm still trying to find my legs. You know, it's uh, my wife's always said that I've always needed art, family, and fire. And so with, with the fire being taken out, I don't know what replaces that third leg of my life, but I'm still working on it. Well, I know you, you're kind of a, a self-described introvert a little bit, but I think mm-hmm. that tribal element of the fire service is the thing that a lot of us struggle with. So we identify as the profession if we're not careful. And, and you obviously have, you know, have your art as well. So that was a, definitely another, yeah. another arm to that. But, um, but also, like you said, that was a group of men and women that you work with every third day, every fourth day, excuse me, 2472. Yeah, yeah. You were in yeah, a more progressive fourth, department. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then one day that bay door closes behind you, your ID isn't valid anymore. I mean, you're literally outside now. Yeah. So, you know, what was that element? Like not having that actual specific group immediately around you anymore? That was tough. Uh, for, you know, and for a while there, I mean, there was a lot of texting. Um, like I said, I live in a town of, of 12,000 people. So, you know, you're not too far away from a station. And so I can, I can still hear the trucks when they roll. I only live about a mile and a half from you know, the firehouse that I worked. And I can tell what truck is on the road, depending on what the siren sounds like, you know? So, it, you know, I was for a long time there, it was always texting. They would get a, they would get a nice call and I would, you know, I would get the text and the photographs of, you know, Hey, screw you, you're not here. You know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of ball busting that you would expect. But uh, yeah, it, it's been tough. Um, like I said, I, I, I miss being around the guys. I kind of miss that. Um, the banter, you know, it's that, it's that banter that you, that you miss. And, so still a work in progress. Well, over to you, Frank, then. Same thing. I, I don't know if we touched on this specifically when we talked, but, you know, I know, you know, a few years ago you made the same transition. So you, as you said, are, are touring a lot. You're visiting other fire departments now. You came down to uh, Orlando where we met face-to-face. So what was that transition like for you? Well, you know, it was interesting for me, James, and I hope that I have good audio with you because <clears throat> right now my kids are home. Uh, it's a virtual learning day, which it wasn't supposed to be. I just found out yesterday they're going to be home. So I have about 45 signals being uh, picked up from different devices. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was doing a lot when I was working. There were times, and I've never told this, I'm going to be really transparent. What happened, it was difficult for me because I'd be working a 24-hour shift and then I'd jump on an airplane the next day 
I would go teach maybe in Ohio, Florida, wherever the day after that, and then fly back that night. And I'd have one day to spend with my family. And then I'm off for another 24 hour shift. And I, I was doing that. I felt uh, a passion and a purpose by teaching this class. Anyone that's taken my class would understand that, that I feel like it's what I'm supposed to be doing, the message I'm supposed to be sharing. But at the same time, near the end of my career uh, in the fire service, um, and I shouldn't even say the end of my career in the fire service, I feel like I'm still in it. But for that department that I worked for, I remember going to the hotel room the night before I'm supposed to speak. And I mean, there were sometimes I'd get very emotional thinking I'm doing this for my family, but I'm not with my family. And I'd sit here saying I'm terrible dad because I'm supposed to be there raising them, even though I feel like I'm doing this for them and not just for them, for everybody, obviously that's taking my class in the training, but it was, I was very conflicted with it. So, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to leave one or the other. I could stop teaching and I could stay focused and just uh, continue working in the fire department or I could or I retire and continue teaching. And it made sense uh, to, to do this. And so I'm very grateful um, that it's continued and that I feel like I can make a difference between my writing and speaking. Uh, I don't feel like I'm missing that much because like you mentioned earlier, they, you know, when those bay doors close behind you, life goes on in that fire station without you. I only hope that I made enough of an impact with enough people there that they will continue to make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, um, you know, a dichotomy as they say, because as you said, Paul, you know, we have the real calls that I miss, you know, I miss the fires, I miss the extrications and the serious EMS calls where we were truly, you know, pre-code and really, really saving a life. But then flip side, as with you, with your hip injury, you know, I found that the last, I think it's been three years now for me, um, I've just repaired, you know, I've healed, I've got better from all the sleep deprivation. Um, An interesting thing with you with with the pills is, one of the things that I found incredibly healing has been CBD and everyone is terrified of that in the fire service, yet we're okay to have opiates prescribed. So with you, with that, that kind of injury, the physical side, you know, what has it been like um, after you retired where you actually got to sleep every day? Have you noticed an improvement in in your overall health? Yeah, I have. Um, You know, I mean, again, once you get over the epiphany that fires will go out without you, um, and that was, that was a hard, again, talking about pills, that was a hard pill to swallow. Um, is that, uh, you know, within a few months after retiring, I uh, actually made a decision to get a total hip replacement. So, um, in about the same time that that happened, COVID happened. So, I had a lot of time to just kind of sit, repair, heal, um, try to get myself into a mental state where um, it was more creative. And uh, it, it honestly took me about three months to learn how to sleep again, to where I wasn't hypervigilant, because I was even hypervigilant here at, the, at home, because of the type of uh, uh, system we run at my department is that you're always on for uh, general alarms when you're not on duty as a, on, on a shift. So if it's, not a, if it's anything more than a single engine response, you're called back to the firehouse. So, you know, you're always, always on in that kind of a system. So, yeah, I had, to learn, I had to learn how to sleep again. Uh, but, you know, as much as it, I struggle with this, my wife sees the biggest impact 
uh, in my mental health. And it's funny that during a walk the other night, she even mentioned it, um, just how I'm always in a better mood now because I am rested because I, you know, I'm not dealing with uh, the constant, uh, again, the BS side of things. Um, I'm not always feeling like I need to know everything because I'm the lieutenant on shift. So, you know, I think she sees it. My daughter sees it more than I see it or feel it. But, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think there's been an improvement. Beautiful. Well, Frank, now we've got the cameras off. Feel free to jump in any anytime if you've got something to to add to that. Yeah, will do. Thank you. Um, but, Paul, with, with your observation, there's a couple of things. Um, firstly, I think that we don't – we forget to ask our loved ones how we're doing. And that sounds bizarre. Like we should know how we're doing, but their lens right. of us is is detached from our baseline of our perceived normal. And it's funny. Like I've asked my wife exactly the same thing. She's she's like, yeah, you're you're so much happier again. You're so much, you know, you're you're less frustrated. Obviously, organizational stress was was the root of most of mine in my last apartment. But that is an invaluable resource for any of us. Is is they say, look in the mirror. Well, that's part of it, but. Ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your children, like, am I any different than I was, you know, a few years ago? Right. All right. Well, then the other th- interesting thing is I just had some um, fire wives on the show. And um, one of the wives was uh, the wife of a volunteer for a while. And so another thing that we don't think about in the fire service is when the wife or husband of a career firefighter um, you know, that we we leave the house and then we go do our thing. But what you talked about being paged out that I never thought about until this conversation was those families are also experiencing that hypervigilance because they get woken up and they see, you know, dad suddenly grab his gear or mom grab her gear and then leave the house not knowing if they're going on a minor incident or if it might be the last time they see him. James, right. what's, in, what's interesting about that is that in many ways that's even worse because they're – like you said, they're getting the page at home and they're leaving. I've had massive fires and major incidents that occurred that my family had no idea ever occurred uh, unless they happen to be watching TV at three o'clock in the morning and, and the helicopter showed the fire that we were at. And so I would come home and they wouldn't even know what we saw. Whereas if you're a volunteer firefighter, you're getting that call at home and it's waking you up. It's waking your spouse up, too. And now they're worried. They wake up and they're worried for the next three, four, five hours until they hear from you again. Whereas for a career fall, uh, firefighter, your your spouse could be at home sleeping through the entire thing and not even know what you're going through. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Paul, what about your perspective? Because I mean, you 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 lived it as well, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it was definitely hard on my wife at times. Uh, especially, you know, if you, if you got some type of event planned or, um, you know, you, you just kind of want some, you know, quiet time as a family. And, you know, like she said, or like I said, you know, every fourth day you knew that, you know, you were, you were, you were on call and the system that we run at my firehouse is that we man the station from 6am to 6pm on Monday through you know seven days a week. And then you're all paid on call, uh, the 12 hours after. So, you know, we, we, the system that we run at the firehouse, it's kind of a hybrid of everything, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it is tough. Uh, there were times where, you know, and, and it's funny after 25 years, she, she learned to, to sleep through a lot of things that she wouldn't even know I was gone sometimes, but uh, 
you know, it's funny that and it, you, you get into certain routines as well, because if, if a call did come in in the middle of the night, it was a general alarm and I had to go that I would just get up and I would go and I was out the door and I was going to the firehouse and, and, and you know, and, and getting on whatever rig was assigned that night. <sighs> I think maybe I was on the job. I don't know. I was, I was part of the fire department for 12 years. And for some reason I reached over and kissed her before leaving on one and she didn't sleep a wink. And it ended up being a structure fire. We were out, you know, on it for probably three or four hours it was, uh, you know, we do a lot of rule. We actually cover a 90 square mile area. So, you know, these farmhouses, you know, the, the fires get into the walls, they get into the knee walls, you know, and it could be a while, especially with the, the slow staffing and the low staffing that we have in this area. But I came back, I think I came back home maybe at like five thirty, six o'clock in the morning and she was up. And the first thing she says, don't ever do that again. Uh, because it was something out of the norm. And to her, that just scared her to death. You know, and it's just, and it's an element of, the, of that part of the fire service that unless you've done it, you just don't, you don't grasp what that does to a family. No, what is so unique because I've only ever done career. So I've only ever gone away for 24 hours, you know. And so it's always been that detachment. When they see me, I'm packing my bags at five in the morning and I get in my car and there's no sense of urgency. There's no, like you right. said, immediate fear because I'm just going to work the same way as someone does to the office. The only difference is when I get there, we might be paged out to God knows what. But to get that kind of lens through the paid on call or, or volunteer family perspective, I'd never thought about till that one um, firewife kind of described her situation. Right. It's tough. And it's, it's something that a lot of times um, we as firefighters don't consider is what it, what it actually does to the family. And it has ripped families apart because that, that's something that's not considered. So yeah, it, it can be tough. Well, Frank, you got anything to add before we kind of move on? Yeah, well, no, I, I can echo exactly what you guys are saying. I'm, but there are times, and I've spoken about this before, uh, probably even on your show, James, where I would not talk with my wife about things that happened uh, at the firehouse. Mm-hmm. And it, it just was something, I, I think it was even more out of a, a selfish reason, meaning this, I didn't want to relive some of the stuff. Not that it was all bad. A lot of it was very good stuff that happened on a, on a regular basis. But then there were those incidents that I would not talk about. And she would be like, what's wrong with you? And nothing's wrong with me. But inside, I'm thinking about that kid or that spouse. Or, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, those incidents that uh, you, you'll see for the rest of your life. And then maybe we'd be out to dinner with some other firefighters that I work with and their spouses or we'd be at their house and I'd be talking with them about the incidents and we'd be really uh, candid about our, you know, what we went through. And, and, and my wife, when we would get home would say, you didn't tell me about that incident. I didn't know that happened because it's hard to talk to her about that. It's hard for me to explain to her uh, that we just uh, experienced a moment, which was the, the worst moment a human being can go through where they lost someone that they love so much, because I think like she will put herself in that situation. What if that happened to me, meaning herself? And I, and I, I'm trying to spare her from that thought. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's making sense, except to say that there were certain things that I just did not want her to have to go through. Um, and 
you know, at the same time, uh, because of that, because I would come home and not share that stuff with her, I, w- I will admit that there were times when we had a great day at the firehouse and I didn't come home and say, hey, I had a great day yesterday. Uh, and maybe I should have done more of that uh, just to let her know, okay, so he, you know, they have good days there too. Uh, and, you know, maybe I don't know really what she thought about my career. This is something I actually want to sit down and ask her one day. Like, what do you think I did every day at the firehouse? Because I don't know. Maybe she just thought we actually sat at the kitchen table and told jokes. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but but at the same time, um, you know, she comes. My brother's a firefighter. My dad's a retired firefighter. So she's been around that for a long enough time that that she knows that there's good and bad that comes with the job. And very rarely do we come home and, and share those things with people that we feel can't understand and relate to it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said about um, the perception. I think that's one thing that, that blows me away that in 2021, people still have no idea what we do. And they, as you said, they don't need to know all the gory details. But, you know, the, the, the phrase, why is there a fire engine on this medical call shouldn't leave anyone's lips in <laughs> in this uh, right. millennia you know so i had yeah. a um a guy who was uh, a branding you know a marketing guy who worked with georges and pierre and just did the montreal um soccer clubs logo and branding um and i asked him like you know what are we doing wrong and he said and it was very interesting he said from what i can tell when you go to you know the proposed budgets and that kind of thing you talk about what it's going to cost and you don't focus on value, meaning, you know, when we're going to the public asking for X amount of money, we're explaining to them, here's what we do, here's what this will, you know, uh, this will add this staffing, which will impact you in this way, we'll be able to, to get to your, you know, emergency faster. Conversely, if you close this fire station, here's going to be the impact, you'll still pay the same tax, but your you know, your uh, response will be delayed. And we don't relay those messages and we don't explain the way that fire and EMS works in the U.S. anymore. So there's, yeah, listen, I want to elaborate on that because there's a lot of truth to that because I've been in those meetings with town council and you have to talk uh, the dollars and cents with them, uh, but also why it's important to us. I actually was just yesterday talking to uh, a guy. I was at my son's baseball practice and the guy said, yeah, I went to the town and proposed that we put lights up here so we could have night games. And I taught, I did pricing for them. I told them it cost $190,000 if we were to get, uh, you know, uh, these lights. And all they were saying was, well, what about the neighbors in that area? And this and that, and they shut it down right away. I said, well, it's interesting because my little league recently went to our town also with the same price and said, we like to put lights, but we talked about all the reasons why it would help the town, the community, and our little league, how it's going to help us raise money by hosting tournaments that we could do at night because we have the fields, but we don't have the lighting to do it and how we can keep kids off the streets. We, we went with that angle and they said, hey, this is great. And they knocked things off their budget to put the lighting on their budget. So it, that, that's in line with what you're just saying. When we're talking to the town about marketing and trying to help us get the resources we need. Uh, We've went as far, James, as to create a PowerPoint one time where we showed them this is what happens with every engine and ladder company that arrives on scene, with which us was three-member engine companies, four-member ladder companies. So these three members do this, these three do this, these four do this. This is why we need three more. 
And we would explain it that way through a PowerPoint presentation. So they can sit there and go, oh, okay, we get it. You don't just want more members. You want more members to do this duty because if this isn't done, this can't happen. And then, you know, uh, you're, you're kind of speaking, when I say dollars and cents, I used to say dollars and common sense is how we want to talk to them. Beautiful. Paul, you got anything to add? No, because just being a company officer, I was shielded from a lot of that. <laughs> so I was lucky. I never, I never had to go and talk budgets with city council or, or anything like that. And um, it was, uh, it wasn't in the culture of my fire department to uh, uh, bring those concerns and uh, those conversations down to the company officer level either. So uh, I really don't have any experience with that at all. And James, Paul makes a great a great point right there. Whereas everywhere you are in an organization, if you're a brand new firefighter, you see things through that perspective. When you're a company officer, you see things through that perspective. As a deputy chief or administrative chief, you see things through a completely different perspective, just like a chief would. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy for us to point the finger at the person above us and go, all they care about is X, Y, and Z. When, Because we're just seeing things through our own lens. Yep. And it's almost like, and I used to explain it to firefighters this way: um, if you're if you're looking at a structure fire, and I and I and I put you one foot away from the structure to where all you can see is the the twenty bricks in front of you, uh, what do you know about that structure? Nothing. Now put yourself back at the command post and looking at two sides of the building. Do you have more information? Of course you do. Well, that's how, as you move through the ranks, that's kind of what happens. You're stepping away from that wall. You're seeing it through a different lens, through a different perspective. You have more information and you're thinking about more than just the task you have to accomplish. You're thinking about the overall mission of your organization. And when you see things through that lens, you, you, you sometimes you make decisions that aren't popular for one group, but they're the right decision for the entire organization. And a lot of people can't understand that. So I, I just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit because Paul touched on it because he ha- didn't have yeah, to deal with, with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think conversely, just to play devil's advocate, um, if you are not aware of the mission, you can make decisions that don't benefit a lot of the people. And that's what I, I saw with the just the last the last place I worked at um, was if you asked them what their actual mission was, I don't think they'd be able to tell you. There was no kind of no push for for you know more education better wellness i mean any any of things that would benefit not only our response but the wellness of the responders um so that's an important perspective too is if you stand back and you're not clear what the mission even is then maybe it's time to start going back into the ranks and asking and and and, you know disseminating that right here's here's our goal here's our five-year here's our 10-year plan for this department yeah and get feedback from the people that have to carry out the mission because it's so easy for us to say you need to do X, Y, Z. But what we need to do more of is you need to do X, Y, Z. Here's why you need to do X, Y, Z. What do you need from us in order to effectively do X, Y, Z? And do you have a better idea of how you think we can accomplish this? So if we if we kind of have these conversations with people, you create a better working environment for everybody. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, you touched on on COVID a little while ago, and I want to get both your perspectives of the last year. We'll, st- we'll stay with you, Frank, first, because you were physically visiting a lot of places around around this country specifically. So tell me about the last 12 months or so through your eyes. 
Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, you know, it really was because my next door neighbor, uh, Antonio, uh, if you, I don't actually want to give you his full name because uh, out of privacy, but it'd be pretty easy if you were to Google uh, the name Antonio and COVID and New Jersey to figure out um, that my next door neighbor was a police officer. One of the very first cases of COVID, they diagnosed him with double pneumonia. Um, they didn't know how to treat him. He was on a respirator, turned out for more than three months on an ECMO machine, uh, flatlined, came back. He's one of my best buddies. He's now healthy. He's back to work, but we thought we were going to lose him. So our introduction to COVID was it can take a perfectly healthy 40-year-old and and put him on his deathbed. And obviously, that that you know, there's some truth to that. It has happened to many people. And so, uh, so it was devastating for us. But at the same time, <clears throat> well, first of all, from, from a business standpoint, I stopped traveling. Things were getting canceled left and right. My very last one was... Uh, and I'm back doing it now full time, but I was out in uh, San Francisco exactly when COVID hit San Francisco, I was out there teaching. And when I came back, my wife's like, don't bring this thing back with you, whatever it is. I'm like, you know, I don't see anything out here. By the time I got back, I went to uh, a wrestling match, the big tens at Rutgers. It was full stadium. And that was the last full event we had until about a month ago. (laughs) So, but during this time, I will tell you that um, I spent a lot of quality time with my family and with my boys. We played baseball every day. Um, We connected in a way that I think we, I don't want to say we lost, but we weren't doing enough of. And so when I say it was the best and the worst of times, that's what I mean by the best of times was I think it, it had the ability to bring families closer and, uh, and it did that for mine during that time. Yeah, well, it's an interesting perspective. I want to pull a couple of things out. Firstly, what worried me right at the very beginning, and I was talking about this, you know, in March last year, was that so many of us think of ourselves as healthy, but when you add the shift work in the sleep deprivation and you delve into what that actually does to the human body, I think there was a, I think we, we were a lot more fragile than people realized. And you saw that. I mean, the police department lost a huge amount of, uh, uh, personnel to to COVID, and I'm sure we did in fire too. Now, of course, there's underlying elements too, but in my opinion, shift work creates those underlying elements. So, you know, that's terrifying. But I'm so glad that he was able to come out of it, and I think that's that's what hasn't really been disseminated. Is there's so many things to be um, optimistic about. Like the medical community did learn how to treat. You know, whether you're pro or against, vaccination definitely has made a difference, you know. Um, so, and then the numbers themselves were less than we initially thought. So, you know, I think these, these survival cases are very important and it's amazing that he's, uh, he's come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And when, listen, trust me, he just had a birthday uh, a couple days ago and, uh, he's just looking so healthy and he's so strong. And, uh, we just remember the birthday one year ago and how terrible of an experience it was. So, no, hey, listen, it, it's it's still a thing we're trying to figure out. I have a relative that just last week passed away, and they said he passed away from COVID. Uh, this is just a week ago uh, and, and more than a year into it. So, And I don't know what his underlying health issues or conditions were. Uh, I don't feel like we're completely out of the woods, but I feel like we're a lot uh, a lot closer to normal than we, than we have been, and I'm, and I feel good about that. Absolutely. Well, one more thing, staying with you, Frank, just for a moment. Um, I had James, excuse me, James Johnson on, um, and 
he this was way before covid but he kind of like yourself was traveling a lot um and basically got to the point of burnout where he was traveling and teaching so much that he was almost disconnecting from his family um and so i think this this last year was was a, a good hard stop for him and he realized that now that he was he was going to gate back a lot on his actual traveling um and just pick the you know the most pertinent ones and i think he was kind of diving into the online element too so have you changed some of your philosophy on traveling and maybe using some of the virtual elements to to add to your teaching now well listen i, I love doing the virtual training i've done so much of it um during this and i've had a lot of fun i figured it out how to connect with people even through virtual i love doing it there's nothing like a live audience at the same time uh and i and i don't shy away from training uh uh live and, and doing presentations like i said I'm, earlier i'm going to be in wisconsin uh, later on this week. And I got a couple out in uh, Alabama coming up after that, Michigan, Florida. Uh, and I love it. I love connecting with people. The The thing for me is uh, I'm more cautious when I travel. I think uh, I do wear my mask uh, and I plan on doing that for a while. I am vaccinated. Uh, you know, and I know that's controversial with some people for me with brainer, you know, I, I have seen the worst of it. I've seen the worst of it. Uh, so for me, I want to make sure that I do my part to not bring this home to my family, um, you know, for, for the most part. And we feel pretty good about that. But um, I, I need that human contact, James. I'm one of these people, you know, you talk about depression, anxiety, and I've, I've shared with you, I've, I've dealt with those things in my life and I've never shied away from it. I talked about this in my seminars. I'm an overthinker and I'm an overthinker who I'll wake up at, at three and four in the morning and I can put myself in an anxious state or even uh, I, I'm, I'm so vulnerable at that moment when I wake up at two, three, four in the morning, I'm so vulnerable. And I hope, I hope when I share this, somebody listening to this can understand this because, uh, or can understand that other people go through this and it can help them. Uh, I'm, I'm weak at that moment when I wake up and I start overthinking about things and thinking about, Oh, I didn't do this. I need to do this. And what, Oh, I made a bad choice and I shouldn't have said this. If this happens, what if that happens, that happens with my brain. And so I have to find ways to turn it off. For me, what I do is, is writing, create, creating things. Um, if anybody follows me on social media, they know I, I put out videos that I create. I put out, uh, you know, these blog posts that I'll write and, and I do a little bit of podcasting for fun, James. Um, but cause I like having conversations with people and just putting out content, creating things makes me happy. Progress makes me happy. If I'm not creating, if I'm not making progress, I could become, uh, I could become a depressed, uh, temperamental type of person that's hard to live with. Um, so these things are important for me. And when I know that I have a class coming up and I'm going to have a, an opportunity to share something that's going to make a positive impact in somebody's life, um, I get excited about that. I, I truly do. I get excited about that because I feel like that's my purpose for being here through writing and through uh, presenting. Uh, and that's kind of a roundabout answer of what we were just talking about. But but I feel very, listen, you, you do some tremendous stuff with your podcast and your book, which is in my hand right now. One more light life, death. And you're in the bathroom. I know. <laughs> I'm telling you, no, you know, somebody once said to me, Hey, I read your entire book in my bathroom. I'm like, what? 
They said, yeah, step up and lead. I read it in, in the bathroom. I go, in one sitting? He goes, no, no, in several sittings. I go, oh, that's great, because I wrote it in several sittings in the bathroom. So, no, I'm kidding. I didn't. But your book can make can help people that are going through challenging times. And, and by the way, your book is so beautifully written that it makes me want to be a better writer also. So, I mean, it's a very inspiring book in that aspect from a writer, um, but it's also a very impactful and powerful book to help people get through challenges in their life. So thank you for writing that. Well, thank you. I mean, I, we talked a little while ago and, and you know, you, you gave me your feedback, but it it's very powerful when it's someone that you respect, someone who's got you know, books already out there, very well-respected books to give you feedback like that. So I'm honored that you took the time to read it and that you enjoyed it. So thank you. You're welcome. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you kick it off the poll in one second. But just to wrap up on COVID, my 10-year-old just knocked on the door, opened the door and held up a sign that said, we don't have to wear masks anymore in school. For the, so for the first time, our kids are not going to have to wear masks. It's optional. I'm so happy for them because yesterday... It was 95 degrees. They don't have air conditioning in this room. And we just decided, you know what? We're going to keep them home. We're going to go to the beach and have a mental health day at the beach instead of having to wear a mask in 95 degree heat with no air conditioning for five straight hours or six. So, um, you know, we're still in New Jersey. We're still coming out of this. In some states, they've unmasked their kids a long time ago. We've been trying to unmask our kids for a couple months now. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we've, we've actually been quite, you know, uh, progressive is the right word, but but they've been very sensible. They analyze each tier, you know, as we started coming out for spikes and that kind of thing. And even though Florida was reported as irresponsible and that stuff, everyone that's in the state of Florida is like, I don't know what you're talking about because we're really not seeing the kind of rise that would, you know, would warrant this, this kind of national shutdown in our state specifically. So that's, again, great news. There's nothing bad about that at all. But our kids wore masks all the way through to the last day. So... Um, we're just kind of unpeeling now. So I'm hoping that when my son goes back in August for his first day in high school, that that will, will be maintained and there'll be no, no more masks and visors and six feet from each other and they can actually be children again. Yeah. And they need that. Absolutely. Well, Paul, so you, you know, around the COVID time, you've retired, you had hip surgery. And then, you know, we, we began this pandemic. So what were the last kind of 14 months like for you? You know, it, it's, it's aside from the fact that like Frank, it touched, it touched my family personally. Um, we had some retirees in the area that I knew very well. I taught with some uh, that passed away from this. So, you know, I mean, it, on a personal level, it never really affected me much because at that time, again, at the same time retirement and the surgery, I had actually taken a break from, uh, public speaking uh, a couple of months prior to that. And because leading up to my keynote at FDIC, I really felt like I needed the repetitions of being in front of people to be able to deliver uh, what was expected. So I was, I had booked some type of travel and some type of public speaking every week or every two weeks the year prior to that. And so I had already reached that burnout phase by the time FDIC was done. I had nothing planned. And then retirement, and then, you know, we roll into uh, 2020 with, with, with COVID. Things for me didn't really change much because I was still spending 99% of my time in the studio. And I was already doing a lot of the virtual uh, type meetings. 
So, you know, I mean, it, it was kind of a perfect storm as far as personally for me with timing and that sort of thing, because it didn't really affect me. I mean, my daughter's grown. She's a professional photographer now in Columbus, Ohio. So we didn't have young kids around. We didn't have a lot of those things. Um, where my wife works, uh, they, they, they just kind of made adjustments. They never shut down. You know, so, I mean, life for us didn't change a whole lot. Um, even when my wife and I both got COVID, it was very mild. I mean, we, we, we both just kind of had uh, cold or, or allergy symptoms out of this. So, you know, it, it, we feel like we're in a little bit of a bubble with the rest of the world sometimes. Um, but it wasn't until last summer when it started taking some, some close friends that the, the, the gravity of it really hit home for us. Um, but being out of the fire service is a reason that a lot of my, I haven't done many cartoons at all that relate to COVID. I think honestly, I've only done maybe two is because I, I mean, I, I feel like I have to draw and, and I have to comment on things that I've actually lived through. Um, I wasn't living in that world. So I wasn't going to make comments about it other than, you know, a couple maybe silly little, little comments that I would make, you know, with a cartoon, but uh, I didn't feel like that I had the right to be saying anything uh, because I wasn't going to the firehouse every day now, and I wasn't having to get on that rig and have to put on the mask and go on the medical calls uh, in this different world. So, uh, it, you know, it, it affected us very mild, and I'm, I'm fortunate for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and thank you again, both for your perspective. This is what I think people need to hear, where most people are standing squarely in the middle. Like, yes, we acknowledge that this is a horrific disease, and if you are vulnerable to that particular virus then it can be you know absolutely tragic for for you know yeah. the, the patient and the family around them conversely there are a lot of places around the country and this is amazing news where children you know healthy adults got it or didn't get it you know and were absolutely fine so that the the polarizing politically charged narratives that have been around this have been nauseating. I've been vaccinated. I want to go home and see my family, you know, so I didn't want that to be a barrier. And I'm, it's funny how there's such a pushback yet in fire we are we have to get hep b and all these other ones every year and no one no one complains at all <laughs> right, right but you right. know just this yes it's a yes it's a thing and no it's not as bad as we thought and i think that 90 percent of the population standing in the middle agreeing with those kind of you know both those sides of the story but sadly these extreme you know um lefts right. and rights are just it's all we freaking hear and it, and it totally takes away from what I wish we would get out of this, which is underlying health of this country and other countries. Like If we don't learn to make our population healthier, then all those people that died, died in vain, because that was a huge lesson from Mother Nature. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very well said. Right. Well, let's transition then to the book. So I'll go back to you, Frank, with the origin story. But um, I I watched the video that you guys did on um, you know the the genesis of this, and then um, Paul, you kind of showed some of the the way the artwork was made. So I'll put the link to that site. But I urge everyone listening to watch that video as well. That was such a great um, you know dynamic between the two of you. So Frank, tell me about the origin of this story, and then we'll bring Paul in as far as how you were finally able to persuade him to to be the person to do the illustration. Yeah, we should get deeper into that than we did in our previous conversation. But um, you know, it's more than twenty years ago that I 
was home one day and I had written the story of Sprinkles, the fire dog. It was one of the first things I'd ever written and it needed a lot of work for sure. But it was just this, this little puppy who I will only say about him that he, uh, he had a lot of self-doubt. Um, he didn't kind of, uh, fit the stereotype of what you would expect from a fire dog. Uh, so he's a little small, a little bit weaker uh, than the other dogs. And, and he, and he was lonely, you know, he, he was in a big city living alone and he was kind of teased by the neighborhood dogs, which we call the corner mutts. And we all have corner mutts in our life. And, you know, in retrospect, when I think about it, you know, as a writer, sometimes when you create a character like this, you know, there's a part of you that is that character. I, I think there's a part of me that's almost every character I've ever written in my, in my nonfiction books and, and even in this book, the children's book. But, but um, I related with this little guy. I related with the underdog and the story was written. And there was a time when I actually had my first book published, um, which was Common Valor. There was a time that I brought this to uh, somebody and I thought, hey, you know what? Uh, I want to, I want to, I want to make this into a book. And, and it's, person had written a book and they looked at it and kind of shrugged it off. And then I just put it away and forgot about it. And as I shared, um, and Paul knows the story, but as you know, my family, uh, a couple of times we had put together this time caps. We took this PVC pipe with caps on each side, threw a bunch of pictures, videotapes, and some other things inside of it. And every 10 or 20 years, we would set a date and say, we're going to open the time capsule. And it just so happens when all of my aunts, uncles, family, when all of them could get together to open up this time capsule, I was working at the firehouse, so I couldn't be there. And But I was okay. My wife said she's going there with the boys, and, she, and we weren't even together when we put the time capsule together. So I'm like, I hope nothing comes out that shouldn't come out, because I don't remember what I put in there. And uh, certainly they, they watch the video. We all, we all leave a message. Hey, in 20 years, I hope this happens. And I hope to see this for my family. And I'd like to become this, that type of thing. Uh, but my wife, when I come home from work, she says, did you write this? And it was Sprinkles, the fire dog by Frank Viscuso. And it was just printed out. And I said, yeah, I did. Wow. I, you know, I haven't thought about this in a while. And she says, you need to read this to the boys. I'm like, you think so? She goes, yeah. So I sat the boys down later that night. I read the story to them. They loved the story. And, and then they had a mystery reader coming into my son's school and I signed up with the teacher to do it. So you don't know who's going to come in. The kids get surprised. I come in, I come in with some fire gear with a couple of uh, children's books. I read the children's books to them, but I also read sprinkles, the fire dog, which was again, just on just typed up on paper. It wasn't an actual book, it's manuscript. But they connected with that story way more than the other ones with the pictures and all. They connected with the story of sprinkles. They wanted to, and then I started asking them questions. Do you have people in your life that make you feel like you can't do the things you want to do? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, now you know you don't need to listen to them. They don't have power over you. And has has any kid ever made you feel this way? Yes, they have. I'd say, okay. Well, now you know what that feels like. Now you know not to make anyone else feel that way. We'd have these conversations. And I thought, you know what? Maybe it's time. I mean, I have a lot of books out right now. 
uh, and who else would you want to illustrate a children's book that has a connection to the fire service than somebody else who's connected to the fire service? And in and having a relationship with Paul, he's obviously the first one I went to. And he read it, and I'll let him tell you his side of the story, but I will tell you this, that uh, he probably had the, had read the book maybe three years before the book actually became a book. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't fully sure if he was ever going to do it. There was one point in there that I was talking to other artists because I, I thought he's just not going to do it. And now I really want to make sure this doesn't, this doesn't just fade away. Now is the right time for a positive message for our children. And then um, thankfully Paul had to have a hip replacement. <laughs> <laughs> And I say I say that because I remember him saying to when he said to you earlier that I had a hip replacement, it actually it rang that bell in my head. I go, that's right. I remember him saying, Hey, when I have this hip replacement, I'm gonna have time to work on this. And I thought, well, maybe that just like when I was sick and I wrote it, he has a hip replacement when he illustrates it. And and it kind of did happen that way. But I'll I'll kick it off to Paul so he can share his perspective of when I initially talked to him about the book and where we went from there. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I get approached a lot about doing children's books, uh, you know, within the fire service and, and outside, and I never considered myself to be a children's book illustrator, or picture book illustrator, because, you know, I've spent my entire career illustrating everything in one panel, whether it be fire cartoons or, you know, I do a lot of uh, freelance work uh, for occupational safety, so if I'm working for, uh, you know, a company like BNSF, you know, BNSF or, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines, it's one poster. It says an entire message with one image. So to, 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 to actually take a book and do 32 pages or 24 pages or whatever, you know, these books would entail, I never thought that I could tell a story sequentially. And so I turned down a lot of those opportunities. So Frank, Send me this, and I'm and, and and I have to admit, you know, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, he wrote a children's story. Everybody writes a children's story, and I didn't read it for a couple of weeks. And he pinged me again and said, "What'd you think?" And I'm like, okay, I, you know, I just out of respect to Frank, I need to read this thing. And when I read it, I was like, you know, this this is really good, and it's different than the other stories where you know. The, the, the little the little Dalmatian visits the firehouse. This is fire gear. This is a fire truck. This is what it does. And those are the type of stories you typically get, which, which are good, but it wasn't anything that I was interested in. And it was the message uh, that, that this story had. And it was a powerful message about ignoring the mutts. And it's funny that it, it, it hit me about a time where I didn't have a lot of external mutts barking, but I had a lot of internal mutts. And it's funny that Frank brings up the, 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 the moments of the night where he wakes up at 2.30, 3 o'clock where he's the most vulnerable. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that he and I do really relate to each other because uh, that, is, that is when my internal dogs and mutts bark the loudest. And that's when my internal voice goes, everything you do sucks. You suck. You know you suck. And I, and I listen. You know, because again, I'm not I'm not awake enough, or I'm not strong enough at that moment to to put them aside. So I have a lot of those two, you know, two thirty, three o'clock moments where I get up and I just start sketching something, and for no other reason, just to get whatever is in my head out. So when I'm reading these stories about the mutts, it wasn't the story of sprinkles that inspired me. It was it was 
sticking it to the mutts. I've always been someone who, who has stood up for the underdog. Uh, all my fights in high school were always against bullies. I hate a bully, you know, and whether it was someone trying to bully me or someone bullying someone else that I barely knew, I, I just, it's, it's those corner mutts that I can't stand. So that's what really drew me to this story is I wanted to draw those corner mutts. And the, the, the obstacle that was, was is in front of me, though, was is that I didn't know how to draw that. I didn't know how to tell that story. Um, and if you look, I mean, it went, and Frank and I talk about it uh, in his podcast, is the first, uh, if you look at the date of the first concept drawing I came up with was Sprinkles. It's dated to December of 2019. Uh, so it took, it took a while for me to find my legs as an illustrator to do this because I didn't want to just produce something that uh, was common. I wanted to do something that was totally out of my comfort zone that I was going to learn and grow. And it was going to be something that was going to be visually very compelling because the story was so powerful. It needed just as powerful illustrations to accompany it. Well, in the the conversation that you guys have that I was referring to in the video on the site, um, you show some of the concept art. And that first one, it, the, before Frank even gave his feedback, it, it does look exactly what he said, which was he looks like a confident, muscular yeah. puppy Dalmatian that could whoop some ass already. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it was interesting artistically kind of you – you know, working through that process to that that vulnerable inner child that a lot of us have, and and I suffer from that um, imposter syndrome too, and not not to a you know a crippling point, but I always talk about it a lot. Like no one realizes that I have no idea what I'm doing in life, and that, you know, <laughs> that's the the inner <laughs> inner monologue. But even what you said with um with the bully, I I 100% agree, and that was a huge part of you know why I started this as well. But as a school kid, I was terrified if I was confronted by a bully, but fearless if I was protecting someone else. It was very, very strange. Um, and I think that obviously carries over to the profession that we do. Right. You know, it's funny. I never had that problem because I was six foot tall by the time I was a freshman in high school. So, you know, I, I was one of the bigger kids to begin with. So I never faced a lot of bullying. Um, but I sure as hell wasn't going to sit around and watch someone else get bullied. Yeah, I was about five foot four and about 80 pounds. <laughs> so, and I wasn't actually bullied myself because I had a smart mouth. But, right. you know, if someone did get in my face, I would, you know, I would have this huge yeah. fear, oh, yeah. fear response. But, yeah, there was something about when it was aimed at someone else, then, you know, it would be, it would be very different. So, well, back to you, Frank. So, talk again about, you know, when, uh, when Paul agreed to it, like what was the process like applying the artist and the writer together? Right now, I'm just wishing I had Paul as a friend in high school because I was 103 pounds as a freshman. I could have used, <laughs> I could have used a, 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 a bodyguard. bodyguard. Yeah. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Luckily, I was a wrestler, and in wrestling, you compete against kids your own size and weight, so I was okay there. But outside, off the wrestling mat, it was a different story. Um, you know. It was uh, it was really great. Now, Paul talks about when the first concept drawings came in, but we started talking about the book uh, even before that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a year before that or more. So it was a long time coming. It was very slow uh, on his end, but that's because that was his timing. You know, he had things he was working on or working through. 
And there was a part of me that thought he's going to do it. Nope, it's not going to happen. Oh, he's definitely going to do it. That was a promising conversation. Nope, he's not going to. Uh, you know, and I remember at one point calling him up saying, hey, I, I need to know one way or another. And it's OK if you don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I need to know. And he says, no, Frank, I'm, I definitely want to do it. I definitely want to do it. It's just I have to do X, Y, Z first. And I'm like, OK, that's all I need to hear. I said, but you're it's OK if you say no. I don't want you to think you have to say yes. He's like, I, I want to. That's all I needed. And then for me, it was uh, surrender it and let it happen in a time frame it's supposed to happen. And I started working on other projects. But, um, you know, he would he would every now and then just say, hey, what do you think of this? And he'd send me something. And I'm like, everything he sent, you know, it's Paul Combs. It's not like he's going to send you something that you can look at and go, oh, this is terrible. You know, it comes to you and you're like, this is it's unbelievable. He's bringing this story to life when he first uh, drew the sprinkles that we now know as sprinkles. I thought, I mean, I'm looking at it right now, a poster I have hanging up in my office right now that Paul had sent. And, uh, you know, he's just adorable. My son was in here just before this podcast. He's looking at a picture of him on the wall, uh, throwing a baseball on the mound. That's, uh, and he goes, oh, you have that picture in here? I said, Frankie, that's my favorite picture. He goes, the one of sprinkles was my favorite picture in this room. Wow. And yeah. And, but it's, I mean, because that's what it is. It, it, it does that. It draws you in. It's this, it's this little guy that you want to cheer for. And uh, every pan he sent me was amazing, but what I'd like to illustrate, or, or I'm sorry, what I'd like to, I guess the point I want to get across with working with other people, when you have the right person in the right position, it life is great. And this is how every great business in America and every great, great fire department in America is run. You put the right people in the right positions, you get out of the way and you let them do their job. And when Paul Combs is illustrating your children's book, you get out of his way, you let him do his job. I don't know that there was many suggestions that I gave Paul as to, hey, why don't you do this or this? At one point, I even thought, I wonder if Paul would like me to storybook it from my perspective and send it to him. In retrospect, I realized that probably would have been the worst thing I could have done is because that might've made him say, well, wait a minute. Now he wants me to draw it his way. And and that, and that takes from his perspective, that might make him think that I'm, I want him to take his personality out of it. No, I just thought maybe if I do, if I storybook it, uh, maybe, that can be the catalyst to make him say, oh, okay, you know what? This is a great idea. Let's go with this. Or I'm going to change a few things. But for me, it was just like, Frank, just let him work his time. And when he started sending me stuff, uh, it was gr- I would show it to my wife first before anybody else. And she would just go, this is amazing. I'm like, it's unbelievable. It's, it, he, he's captured it all. And for her, it was about the detail. For me, it was about the characters and how the characters came to life. Yeah, well, the final, you know, version of um, of the dog is is you know again it, it's such a metamorphosis from like I said that seemingly confident first draft to you know to the the final sprinkles. So, from an artist's perspective, Paul, how were you able not only to to manifest the character but also, as you said, deviate from a picture speaks a thousand words to a picture illustrates the words below. You know, it's, it, it took, I mean, it literally was a lot of drawing and a lot of frustration because 
just when I think that I would actually be onto something, uh, I, I knew there was an inner voice that would say, this isn't right. This isn't sprinkles. This isn't the way it needs to be. So I would set it aside and then I would get I would have freelance projects. At the time I was doing a corporate gig, uh, still working from home, but it was a lot of responsibility and a lot of, you know, Zoom and Skype calls. And it was, it was some kind of a soul sucking job to begin with, uh, it, only in the sense of that's how I perceived it. So I, it, there were times where I just didn't even feel like working on sprinkles. And, you know, Frank talks about, you know, the, the leadership lessons beyond just what we were doing um, as an author and illustrator. But part of that is communication as well. And one of the things that I learned uh, later in this process was I need to be communicating with Frank a lot more than I am. Because, you know, I don't think that I, I I'm, not, I'm not thinking as loudly as I think I am at a lot of times. And I would be working on these and I would totally forget that Frank was out there waiting to see some kind of progress. And it dawned on me, he's like, oh my God, Frank hasn't seen anything in, in, in two to three weeks. And I would send him like two or three spreads, you know, at a time. And it, it was only because I was just so caught up in the creative process of this that I was oblivious that there was any other people out there. And it was, again, lessons that I had to learn uh, away from the drawing table and working with, uh, working with an author and keeping them involved in this. Uh, there were times where um, I would send something to Frank and I would kind of, it wasn't an apprehension, but it was like, oh my gosh, am I, am I getting this right? Am I on the right track? And then he would always you know, come back with positive feedback or at least a positive word of saying, yeah, this is exactly what we're looking for. And that emboldened me to go and push the boundaries even farther as the book went along, because I actually illustrated this sequentially. I didn't jump between spreads front to back of the book. So as the, the story went along, I think the characters and the personality of Sprinkles becomes a little bolder only because of the encouragement Frank was giving me and in the, in, in the, in no pun intended, but the long leash to actually put my personality in this. So by the time in the book where Sprinkles actually becomes the fire dog and, and finds that confidence within himself, I think you really see it and you really feel it within the illustrations because I was feeling it as the artist. Well, an interesting kind of perspective as well. And again, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I know you're pre-ordering at the moment, but you you mentioned in the other interview, obviously it's a children's book, but there's so much value for an older audience as well. And mm -hmm. between the two of you, there seems to be that leadership concept, which is, you know, training and trust. So obviously, you know, you're both individually trained, one as a writer, one as an artist, but you're both kind of hesitant to, to um, interfere with the other process and you just trust the person to do their job, which I think is where, you know, an area that we see lacking in some of the kind of more micromanaged, you know, fire departments out there. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to say it as Paul was talking about this also that this, when he was creating these characters um, from his perspective and bringing them to life. I remember hearing Dave Grohl just recently, somebody asked him, what's it like when people sing your songs back to you? And he says, it's the greatest thing for a musician. You know, when you have 50,000 people singing your song back to you, having Paul Combs illustrate this thing is the greatest for a writer because he bring characters to life and it becomes, it, it gets to a point where I'm like, well, this is as much or more his book than mine. But at the same time, um, it's it's a collaboration that that I think 
shows exactly how collaboration should work. Put people in their lane and let them do their job. I can write stories all day long. You know, I, I have so many stories, uh, you know, written that manuscripts, full manuscripts, full screenplays, six screenplays, three more manuscripts. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Uh, you know, maybe I make the right contact at the right person, uh, the right person at the right time where someone says, hey, I want to read this one of your manuscripts. And maybe something happens with it. I don't know. But but for me, I know I did my job. And my the thing that I love is creating. And and the thing that Paul loves is creating. But we just, we create differently. Um, and I think if we get in a situation, James, where we are trying to have people do things the way we want to do it all the time, uh, I think a couple of things happen. One is, is you can create a very lonely existence. If I'm working with an artist and I say, no, 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 it's all wrong. Do this, do this, do this. I want to see this. First of all, if I'm working with that person, I'm working with the wrong person and they're working with the wrong person. We're both working with the wrong person if we have to do that. Uh, we have to have faith in each other. We have to believe in each other. And we have to believe in the message of what we're trying to do. And that's the thing that I think this book has done for both Paul and I, is we feel it's the right time for this message, uh, for when we're so divisive. Everybody, I mean, cable news is is trying to divide. If you agree with this, then you have to hate the people who agree with the opposing point of view. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to say you don't have to hate anybody. You can agree to disagree, and you don't have to believe what the corner mutts are saying. You don't have to let them affect you in your life. Focus on where you want to go. Do the best that you can. And you're either going to win or you're going to learn in the process. But don't let anyone else determine your worth. Yep. And that's the message people need, especially kids today, in my opinion, need to hear, is don't let other people determine your worth. Yeah, well, I mean, perfect example. I respect your feedback on my book. You know, there's other people that would say it was crap that I'd be like, all right, well, I literally don't care <laughs> because I don't value your feedback <laughs> anyway. So you choose, you know, yeah, I always say that if, if, if you get criticism from construct, constructive criticism from someone you respect, then absolutely you take it on board. But the problem is, you know, especially in social media and some of these areas, people will say horrible things and you're like, well, who is this person? But they're nothing to you. So don't, you know, just, just disregard that. I mean, let it go. Um, with that, though, with the corner mutt philosophy or, or concept, we're seeing, you know, this last year, we've seen a huge amount, whether it was politically, whether it was about, you know, COVID elements, whatever it was. Through your, both of you being leaders in, in the fire service, through your lenses, what do you see as the reason for the corner mutt? You know, the, these kind of, toxic triggered people on the the either side of these extremes that seem to want to pull people down rather than grow themselves first and foremost i think it's it's easier it's easier for people to cut people down you know uh walt disney used to put people in categories and two of the categories he would put them in are life enhancers or lawnmowers and life enhancers life enhancers are people that build you up um, believe in you, they support you in your dreams and encourage you. Lawnmowers just try to cut you down. But the interesting thing about lawnmowers, like corner mutts, is they never leave their own little square uh, 20 foot by 20 foot area. They just tell you that you're not good enough to get there either because it's easier. 
it's easier for me to try to keep you down than than for me to actually go and just create the life I want and encourage you. So the people that I've always been attracted to in life are the people who were encouragers. It's what I've always wanted to be is someone to say, you can do it. You don't have to believe in what other people say about you. During that process, you being a podcaster with an extremely successful, popular podcast, Paul being you know a tremendous artist and a renowned artist, uh, through my writings, um, you know, we've all encountered a lot of critics and criticism and, and probably um, Paul and I more than you, James, uh, and probably Paul more than me. And I can share with you that um, Paul handles critics extremely well. Um, for me, I when I read a negative review about my books, um, it will hurt, but it hurts way less today than it did 15 years ago, 15 years ago, um, it hurt more because there was still that part of me that had that, that voice that would say, maybe they're right to a point where I would dwell on it. And, and I, something that really changed my perspective was when somebody said, I wish I knew who it was, but they said, uh, did you really have a bad day or did you have a bad 10 minutes and you dwelled on it for the remainder of the day? And I thought that, you just described, you know, I read a bad review and I don't, I don't get a, a lot of them, but I've gotten enough of them, but you, you read a bad review. And if you're three hours later or 24 hours later, or three days later, still dwelling on that, you let that 10 minutes ruin three days of your life. I get to the point now where I'm like, okay, if I have a bad 10 minutes, I'm going to have a great 11th minute and I forget about it. And the thing that I've never, I'm not too concerned with people who may not like my work. I'm more concerned with people who think they have to try to hurt you. You know, <laughs> like there's people out there that want to discredit see the you. world burn. Yes. Yes. And there's people that, that want to like through their words, they want, they want to cut you down. And the reason I say I'm more concerned with with that is because we don't. That just does nothing at all productive in society. If I don't like a television channel, I turn it off. If I don't like a book, I don't read it. If I don't like a movie, I'm not going to watch it. But the last thing I'm going to do is go all over social media telling everybody what a idiot this person is for writing that book or or this message is horrible and try to cut them down to try to build myself up. And that's, I'm seeing too much of that in the world today. I hate when I see firefighters cutting down other firefighters on social media. I'm like, I don't think you understand. We're a tribe. That's not the place to do that. If you're doing that, you're letting this, this social climate that we're in today um, affect you in a way where you don't understand the fire service. Because that's not what we do. And if you do that, you're being led by the wrong people. It's okay to watch people do something idiotic on a video on YouTube at a fire scene and sit down with the members you work with and say, look at this crew. They're not trained well at all. They did everything wrong. But if you do that on social media, man, you're falling into this. this you're, you're, you're just, you're really kind of trying to pull people down into the mud and we don't need, we shouldn't be doing that to each other. Not in this industry. I think the fire service has set the standard in society for trust, 
respect, camaraderie, and all these things that we've become known for. And I don't want this to be the generation or the time that changes that because, because people don't understand that we're supposed to be a family. And, you know, I think you guys can both relate to that because you're both firefighters. People in the fire service may be listening to this saying, I don't understand that. Well, you know, we are uh, a unique group of people that's, that live through unique circumstances that nobody can understand unless they've been through it with us. So we need to also relate to the fact that mistakes will be made if people are not trained properly. Hey, listen, that's why Paul does his artwork to help bring awareness to stuff. That's why I teach and write books to help bring awareness to stuff. That's why you do your podcast to bring awareness of how we can do things better. But none of us, none of us go out there and throw shade on other people who are doing things wrong in a way to say, you know, this group, this individual is an idiot for doing what they've done. And too many people are doing that in society today. They're doing it on Instagram and social media. I'd like to see it stop. Paul, your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's there's no way that I could ever convey my thoughts as well as what Frank just said. Um, the, 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 the art of speech is his superpower. I could draw 10 cartoons on the subject, but... It's it, the frustration comes. I think again, it's the ease of being able to do it. It is the desire to have your 15 minutes of fame. A lot of times, um, there's a lot of anonymity out there that gives people a lot of courage. Um, but it, I, like Frank, I used to, I used to take these to heart. Um, I get to the point now to where. Uh, I, I seldom even read the comments section of anybody's post. I don't actively jump onto Facebook uh, or, or Twitter uh, to even look at other people's stuff anymore because there is so much of that toxicity that I just don't want that in my life at this point. Uh, so there are, there are few people that I will follow if their name pops up. I know these people. These are people that I respect. And these are, these are posts that I want to read. Um, Instagram is a different animal for me that I only follow other artists on that. That's kind of where I get my geek on as far as an artist. So, uh, the, I only follow maybe two or three different fire sites, um, and on Instagram. So I don't get a lot of that there, but the, the, the frustration is that there are people that follow these people to me. It's not the one individual who feels like they need to tear them down. It's that the other people actually give credit to that type of behavior. And it is so disheartening and it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's frustrating to the point to where you just want to, to scream to the world that, you know, that's wrong. But, you know, you do what you can do. You know, I, I do the work that I do. If you agree with it, you, you do. If not, then move on. But there are those out there, like I said, just want to see the world burn. And, you know, it's no different than the rise that we've seen over the last 20 years of reality TV. What's the whole point of that, pro that popularity is to make you feel better about your own life by seeing others tore down. I mean, my God, you can't even watch a cooking show now without it being judged and someone tearing down someone else for their cooking skills. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it, it's just the, the type of culture that we've created and social media just makes it even easier for these individuals to be able to say these things. But, you know, to be honest, 
I know there are people out there that really dislike me. There are people out there that may even hate me. There are those out there that try to discredit my work. And you know what? You're, you're entitled to your opinion. That is fantastic. Trust me, you're not getting under my skin because unless I value you or in your opinion as someone I respect, I'm not even paying attention to you. And that's how I, that's how I view it. No, I, I agree completely. And it's so good to hear two different perspectives. Um, because, I mean, I know, Paul, you talk about your quote-unquote fan mail that you get. But I, <laughs> I talk about this a lot too. Like, I do not understand how some people get tingly in their special place ridiculing a European firefighter's helmet or a pistol grip or, you know, I, I mean, there it's protective gear and a nozzle to put a fire out, you know, and if that, if, if you actually get aroused talking shit about another fire department because of how they look or, you know, they have the audacity to choose a certain host stream, then you are just completely missing the point. And we said before about the mission, the mission is saving lives and protecting our community and that's where we all stand side by side so if you're looking at the minutia then you know again you know you you literally are you know one of the corner mutts and you need to look in the mirror and again like we said at the beginning ask your family hey have i turned into a giant fucking asshole <laughs> because well, you yeah, have absolutely you know yeah you know and it, it's funny that you know I, I get crap a lot of times because i didn't work for a big city and you know what i've had plenty of opportunities in my career to test and, and work for bigger cities. I've had the honor to protect the community that I was born in, that my daughter was born in. You know, we may not have ran 6,000 calls a year, but the calls we did run on, we made a damn big difference. And I'm proud of that. And if you can't live with the fact that I'm a cartoonist and I didn't come from FDMY or Boston or LAFD, then you know what? I, there's nothing I can do to change your mind on that. Move on. Because your opinion really doesn't matter to me. Absolutely. Well, there was an amazing um, documentary that was on the History Channel, and it was called Into the Fire. And there was a volunteer on there, and he said it perfectly. He said, every time a firefighter somewhere on planet Earth makes entry to a fire they're all taking the same risk. Now, you know, some of us will actually go in and pull out the baby and, you know, be on the, the front cover of the newspaper. But that's kind of, that's a, that's a side effect of what we're all prepared to do when we throw on the gear and go to a fire or a police officer goes to a, you know, shooting call or whatever it is. So to, to create some sort of hierarchy, like one firefighter is more important than the other. I mean, look at the 9-11 documentary. That rookie went for months and months and months in you know in uh, manhattan without getting a fire you know so again this this whole kind of dick measuring of of who's better or who's seen more trauma or who's run more calls yeah if i want to go to someone who's teaching at fdic you know high-rise operations yeah i'd rather have it from someone who's done you know a lot of well, high-rise firefighters yes. but that doesn't mean he's any better because this other person in this other city might have run a huge amount of um like traffic accidents so right. it might yes. have a huge extrication history. Another person Absolutely. might be a high angle. Another person might, you know, have seen an incredible amount of, you know, school shootings. I mean, none of us are, it's not a competition. We're right. all on that same mission. And the moment you deviate from the kindness and compassion that drives any of us to throw on a uniform, again, it just, just like when you think you know it all, it's time to just hand in, right. either go see a psychiatrist or hand in your gear, whatever one you want to do. 
Right. Well, you know, and it's something that Frank said earlier about staying in your lane as far as putting people in a lane that, that, that works best for them. But it's also, I mean, you won't see me doing cartoons on high rise firefighting. I don't know that world. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna comment on that world. And the cartoons that I have done on that has been in collaboration with other firefighters who actually fight those fires. You know, but you know, I'm not sure that I want to go to an inner city firefighter who's been there for the last 30 years and ask them about rural water supply. No, or wildland. Or wildland, you know, but they feel like, you know, there are those out there that feel like if you're not metro, you're nothing. When that is absolutely not the case. No, but I feel like those are the squeaky wheels, though, and this is the problem. I actually, it is. I, I, uh, I tripped over a, a concept yesterday um, when I was kind of just having a discussion with my son, and my wife had come back and said they had this, you know, this customer in her store that was being an a hole, and I said, you know, the problem is that we always remember the the assholes of the world, and we miss the kindness and compassion that happens every day to the form of what I call kindness blindness. You know, you. you we were so used to the squeaky wheels having the voices that we miss that most people on the road are driving sensibly. You know, most people will hold a door for you, but you miss it. It's it's the the asshole lets it slams in your face, you know, that you remember. So right. I think one of the big issues is we've given so much power to that triggered left and right minutia that we forget that the majority in the middle are just good people trying to do good in the world. And most firefighters do, you know, do have the well, humility yeah. to learn from each other and do want these silos to come down. But, you know, these, these toxic, you know, individuals are the ones that just seem to get the voice. And I think that's the downside of social media as we've given, you know, negativity a huge platform. Well, yeah, and it's the shock factor. You don't get noticed unless there's a shock factor. You don't get noticed unless you're an extreme of some type of topic. Yeah. Well, the, the worst is when one of them starts a, um, a page of some sort and you see that they get five, six, seven thousand followers. Sometimes I look at the name of some of these pages and I'm like, why are you even following that? You know, yeah. I, I don't get it, but they're, they're, they give the voice and then they feed off of it. And, um, you know, some people, uh, I've had this conversation with people uh, even before, you know, in, as a deputy chief, I've had a conversation with one particular uh, guy who is, put in an acting officer role on my uh on my shift and a very negative guy always spreading negativity and i had to bring him into my office and i said to him look i'm not gonna i'm not gonna have you act anymore on this shift at least not for now he says why and i said well because you're a very effective leader he goes that doesn't make any sense i said no it makes complete sense you have the ability to influence people. People listen to you. You have a voice uh, and you have credibility with them. The problem is you have the wrong message. You're spreading negativity. You don't have people focused on why we're here, which is to provide great service. You don't have people focused on becoming better at our job. You're getting them all worked up about contracts and about X, Y, Z and all this stuff. And until you change your narrative and your focus, I don't want to put you in a position where you could negatively um, affect the culture of this organization and this group in particular. And to his credit, he did turn it around. He did understand that. He did understand. I'm not personally attacking him. I'm just the message is not the right message for 
And I explained this to him. I, I, for five years, I worked on creating a positive culture here. And it, it's taken you about five days in this position to put that all in jeopardy. So I can't allow that to happen. So, you know, sometimes, and you can have those conversations when people aren't hiding behind a screen name and a keyboard. But for the most part, we're allowing too many of these people um, to have uh, a, a voice that is creating a lot of negativity out there in the world. And instead of just shrugging it off and saying, hey, you're, you're entitled to your opinion, but we're not going to give you the credibility that goes with it because you haven't earned the credibility yet. Yeah. Well, I think another area that applies more to our men and women that maybe started off as centered, you know, middle of the road, um, not uber emotional um, firefighters, police officers, whatever it is, but then started becoming more and more and more toxic is the mental health element too. I'm totally guilty of a few years ago, you know, when someone seemed like they were on edge that we'd start pushing their buttons, you know, and then now through this education in the last five years or so, I realized that that actually is probably someone heading towards crisis. So I think some of this toxicity that we see are probably from people that are actually in pain and that's their way of making them feel better. Obviously, it's a very, very poor coping mechanism, but I think that, you know, the fact that we, there's so much negativity, um, is embraced by certain groups shows that we have, uh, especially in the US here, a very, very fortunate nation when we look at it compared to the rest of the world, but yet seem to have a lot of mental ill health amongst us. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. You have to, if a behavior changes, and forget about them, a lot of people we meet, um, my son Frankie said this to me the other day. He goes, Dad, I feel like I meet a lot of people that I'll never see again ever in my life. I go, what do you mean? He goes like that person we just drove by. I'll probably never see that person again for the rest of my life. I said, Frankie, that's, that's very insightful. I said, it's true. Many people you may only see once and never again, but we live in this area. They're walking on a street. That's not far from our house. There's a good chance you will see that person again, but to elaborate on that particular thought, you can meet somebody who you might think is the most miserable, angry person you've ever met in your life, but you don't realize that that they just lost the person they love the most. And that's their coping mechanism. You don't know what they've been through. You know, we talk about empathy a lot in my classes. And that the thing, empathy is seeing things through another person's perspective. But the challenge is empathy is really only possible with when you get within close proximity of another person. Like when you get to know what's happening in their life, then you really understand, oh, okay, that's why they're acting the way they do. And if you're mature enough to actually process this thought of they're not bad people, they're people dealing with a bad situation and they don't know how to deal with it. And, and we had this conversation a lot in my classes about, uh, you know, the, the opioids and, and all the challenges that are going on in America. I wish we had politicians that were talking more about that. Um, I don't hear anyone talking about it, but I, I say, listen, if a person is addicted to heroin, does that make them a bad person? And the majority of people say, no, there are people who made a bad or are making a bad choice. They're in it. They, they've been through a challenge in their life. And then we share some stories about, about people like, I, and I asked people in the room, how many people in this room have been negatively affected by, by 
drug or alcohol abuse, someone in your family, and almost every hand goes up. Like they've all have some kind of contact. And again, we say, are they bad people? No, they're people who maybe made bad choices. They're people who maybe didn't know how to deal with certain situations, who got caught up in things. And maybe they're doing bad things now, but we have to treat them with the respect that they deserve, especially as firefighters, when we're answering calls, we have to go out there and treat them like, and I like to say it this way, treat them like they're your family, treat them like they are your family. And even if they're uh, angry, miserable, bitter people, disrespectful to you, that could be something that's happening in their life that you know nothing about and don't take it personal, do the right thing set the standards, especially when you're in uniform. And what I think firefighters, the, the point that, or the, the place where I think many firefighters are, are, I guess, making uh, a bad decision is social media. That's the place where they're forgetting what they do for a living. You're a public servant. And you always have to exhibit qualities of leadership. That doesn't mean you can't have an opinion on social media. This is America. You can have your opinion, but be respectful in the way you communicate that message. And there's things, that I, I mean, I on my social media page, James, on Step Up Elite, I think there's now um, about 67,000 followers of that page. And Every now and then I'll post something and someone will leave me an inbox. It, it doesn't happen much, but that, that, that would say, hey, chief, uh, I agree with the majority of what you've posted on this site. I know it's all positive. I've seen your, I know what you're about, but I think you got it wrong here. I think this, the, the video you just posted shows a guy and, and, and they'll have their opinion. Uh, and there are times when I actually have had conversations with people say, you know what? Seeing it from your perspective, I can understand exactly how you see it that way. And I'll remove that post because that's not why I meant it. But just the fact that people can misinterpret it makes me realize there's a better way I could say that message. And I've had these conversations with people on social media because they're respecting, you know, they're approaching me in a respectful way, saying, I know you don't mean it this way, but here's how it can come across and has come across. We need more of that in society. We need more people to be understanding, to know that people aren't, there's not a lot of people that are out there trying to throw shade and negativity and, and, and hurt people, but there's some, but we need to be more respectful to each other. And I think that's the message you guys are both saying, and that, that I'm trying to stress right now for the people that need to hear it and say, if you're having a bad day and you need to talk to someone, I'll tell you what, there's three people on this call right now that are very easy to get a hold of on social media. And I've had many conversations with people that have been going through challenging times in their life. And I've been able to, to share my own experiences to help them get through that. James, your books help, your book helps people do that. Your podcast helps people do that. Paul's artwork helps people do that. And we're all accessible on social media. So it's not like there's not somebody out there that can help you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Paul. I mean, your your perspective on on the mental health element. Well, I mean, in, in this conversation that you and I have had in the past, um, I mean, it, it's it, it's been pretty well documented on different podcasts and different cartoons and different writings that I've put out there. That I mean, this is hit home uh, way too often for me as far as not being able to 
or, or not even taking time to notice the change um, in someone else's life. Um, something that came very uh, aware to me in 2008 when my lieutenant committed suicide. That, you know, there were, there were things going on and things happening in his life that we all saw, but we, no one really either paid attention to or we didn't care. Or we're too busy in our own lives and caught up in our own worlds to care. Um, that changed for me then. And that's when it really became apparent to me that I had power within the pen to bring that type of awareness and maybe if nothing else, um, help others out there. And, you know, and I, I know I've had, I've had different conversations with people. I've heard different stories where my artwork has helped save lives. Um, I'd like to think there are more uh, instances out there where that happened that I don't know about. Um, but those, but the, the conversations I've had with people where that's made a direct impact on their lives makes me know that, you know, the, the, I, what a, the decision I made to take that path and to become that advocate for mental health, that was the right one. Um, and because, you know, it's not that I'm saying anything new with my cartoons. I'm just saying it in a different way. I'm putting it in a visual that maybe will be a different impact for those, you know? So uh, it's something that I have strived to do and it's something that I will continue to do. Uh, until we get a handle on this and, you know, and again, it's just where you're hoping you're making a difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, your cartoons are everywhere. I've used them, you know, multiple, multiple times. I think even in the video um, that I put on YouTube a few years ago, um, that again, you could tell we have a mental health um, issue because that ended up being watched like a million and a half times or something. So that speaks volumes as to, you know, and again, even with the comments, yeah, there was some, some, you know, idiots that wrote that are probably in crisis again. So, but they wrote, you know, if you can't handle a job, then, you know, oh, go yeah, work somewhere else. That. But yeah, but I mean, there's that's, that. that's the person that isn't in it or B is more, more likely fighting their own demons and just not brave enough to face them yet. But, um, but yeah, but with, you know, and there's a funny thing with that too, because, and I've had this conversation with a couple of people that I've had those comments and I've heard those comments. And if you get it, if you stay in firefighting long enough, if you don't have those demons, those demons are going to find you you are going to find you're going to be on that call that you can't forget. Frank was saying it earlier. There are calls. I mean, you you go home, those things you don't want to tell your spouse because you're trying to shield them from that. If you stay in this long enough, you're going to come across those times and there's going to be those images that you just can never get out of your head. And a lot of times I think the people that say these comments and that that make these arguments, they just haven't had a chance or they haven't been in long enough uh, to either face those demons or that's how they're facing those demons. Yeah, no, 100%. I think one of the the kind of real eye-opening things for me is when you reverse engineer to a preschool, like a bunch of kids Mm -hmm. that are all, you know, as long as they haven't already experienced trauma up to that point, you know, we're all blank canvases. And then then what happens to us determines the route that we take. And some of us, you know, may be incredibly fortunate where we didn't see much trauma at all, ended up being a firefighter or police officer. And even though we saw a lot of stuff, we were able to deal with it. We had some good positive um, coping mechanisms and, you know, we were more kind of like the, the the more of the kind of beacon of light, pillar of strength kind of person. But then you look at so many human beings and I've, I had my eyes ripped wide open to this concept. So many of our brothers and sisters have had horrendous childhoods or elements of their childhoods, and they seek the uniform professions because they want that cycle to end. They want to be the protector. So they bring all that trauma into the front door. And then we start going through and we, we lose sleep and we see the things that we see. 
and we have the organizational stress and you know relationship strains and some of them get to that very very dark place as do civilians that find themselves addicted homeless you know working the streets whatever it is and to look at all those people and label them as you know pussy whore crackhead and dehumanize you know the men and women that we live amongst is the biggest failure. And I think when you look at the way our news is portrayed and we're, we're split, oh, are you Fox? Are you CNN? And you look at the way that our potential presidents and prime ministers act when they're trying to vie for that position, just being horrendous towards each other. And you never learn anything about what they stand for. That is, you know, that, that's what is kind of put in front of people's faces. What I want to see is what Frank said, reverse engineer to what happens to people when they're young? How do we prevent that? If people are addicted or depressed or anxious, getting to the root of that, not, you know, not demonizing addiction and, you know, all these other kind of negative coping mechanisms that people lean into because they're in pain. So, you know, I wish that that would be, as you said, that and then, you know, the actual physical health, which totally lies, you know, it is intertwined into it. But that was the conversation. We would change the world if we looked at physical health and mental health with the same passion that we've looked at vaccinations, masks, and Chinese conspiracies these last 12 months. Right. And, and, and not to put a brakes on this, but it is that philosophy that, that led me to Frank's story of Sprinkles and led Frank to write Sprinkles, was to reach readers at a young age to let them know that they don't have to listen to the bullies. They don't have to listen to the corner mutts to strive and work hard for what they want to do. It is, it is going back to that root of, of a young reader and telling them this is the way it can be. And this is the way you should strive to do. So I know that's kind of, kind of putting the brakes on the com- current conversation, but you know, it leads, I think it leads in well to the, the whole purpose of writing this book and illustrating this book to begin with. And to elaborate on that, which is very interesting, because we've we've been asked this conversation on social media by our publisher. We've been asked this. We've even asked it to ourselves. What age group is the book for? Yeah. And we, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, except if you're not old enough to read the book by yourself, the book is for you, for someone to read it to you. If you're old enough to read by yourself, the book is for you so you can read it and understand it. And if you're the person reading the book to someone else, a young child, the book's going to be a reminder for you as well. You could be 40 or 50 years old and take just as much away from the story as a four or five-year-old will, simply because it's all about believing in yourself, believing in your dreams, having dreams, not listening to the negative corner mutts, external or internal. Because because this character has that also. This character yeah. has their own self-doubt. And it's about going after your dream. And and you know, it's an interesting thing, James, because yeah, I think you want all three of us I think understand this, that the journey really is where the joy is. Mm-hmm. Because uh Paul probably when he creates an illustration. The journey of creating it is the fun part. Then it's created and it's done. And now, now it's great for all of us because we get to experience it. Um, for me, the journey of creating a book or a story is the fun part. Um, but then when I'm done, I'm done. And it's almost like, uh, you know, I, I was talking the other day to somebody saying, I, I, and I even posted this today on my Step Up and Lead page. 
is that progress makes people happy. Progress makes people happy. When you're making progress, when you're moving in a direction closer to fulfilling your dream or your goal, you're happier than when you're stagnant or if you're moving backwards or in the wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's about trying to encourage people and kids in particular with the story of moving towards their goal. Yeah. And, you know, and the, and the beautiful thing about this and, and, and the brilliance of Frank writing the story the way he did is that nothing is given to Sprinkles in this book. Uh, the success that Sprinkles has toward the end of this book is everything that Sprinkles has earned and he's worked hard to do it. So it's not a story of just believing in your dreams and all of a sudden, you know, magic will happen. Sprinkles had to make the magic happen. And I think that's as important message as anything in this book is that you do have to work hard for your dreams to make them come true. Beautiful. Well, I'm glad that you did circle around because that's a, a brilliant place to kind of, you know, conclude this conversation. When, uh, excuse me, if people are looking to pre-order, how can they do that? And when is the actual official release date? Uh, fireengineeringbooks.com is where you can pre-order the book. Uh, as far as a release date, uh, we were really hoping to have that by this point. Uh, from what I understand, that we may get that this week. I know we were having some issues with the uh, color matching of the illustrations, so they were waiting to get one more uh, color-proof uh, mock-up of the book so we could get that right. And then once that happens, the publisher will be able to give us an exact date of when this book is going to be released. But we certainly uh, know that it will be by uh, the end of June. Paul just gave all that information. Um, we also have on Facebook, we have Sprinkles mm -hmm. the Fire Dog is uh, – is the page that we communicate on regularly. Yeah, these books should be sent out uh, relatively soon. And I know that uh, it's been uh, selling pretty well. People are pretty excited about it. We're excited about it too. I can't wait to, to uh, my, my department actually reached out to me and said, you know, we want to get a copy. So when we go out and we go into the schools and we read stories to the kids to learn, read across America or to promote literacy, we want to read this book because it's from one of our own and tell people your story. And I thought, how, how awesome is that? You know, I mean, that would, came from uh, the chief inspector from my department. So I can't wait to, to know that kids in schools are, are going to get this positive message. And, um, you know, I would just encourage people to uh, stay connected with us. If you're on social media through Facebook or through Paul's, Drawn by Fire. He's got his page. I have Step Up and Lead. We have, we're have we very easy to find. But the book itself could be purchased through Fire Engineering Books. Or even if you go to my website, which is my name, Frank Viscuso, there is a link to it. Paul may have a link to it on his mm -hmm. website as well. Yeah, right. and that's just paulcombsart.com. Beautiful. Well, I just want to thank you both. Um, it's funny. I had like three or four questions on the paper, and here we are, you know, over an hour and a half later in the conversation. But... <laughs> The book looks amazing. I mean, you get you sent me a couple of kind of screenshots of it. I can't wait to get it. I will definitely uh, not read it to my son, but I'll get my son to read it. He's thirteen now, so he might he might not want me to read it anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, but it looks it looks incredible. And again, to me, I I used to go to do the career day when he was in junior school in uh, elementary, and my presentation would yeah would bring the gear and you know talk about the job, but ultimately I would talk about the kindness and compassion element. And I kept getting invited back. And I don't think it was because I was a cool firefighter. I think it was because you could weave that kindness, compassion, anti-bullying um, message into 
our profession. And I think we we don't realize what a what a role model we are. Yet when you think about it, like you can't name one famous firefighter, quote unquote. Um, so you know we have a very powerful platform, and we really can sow the seeds for that generation to become kind, considerate adults, which is again how you change the world. And so, so hearing what you've done with this book and the collaboration, making it not only a good story but a beautiful book to look at and read, uh, I'm very excited to see what happens. So, thank you both for coming on today. It's been such an amazing conversation. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate it all. And I just want to encourage anybody who's listening to stop believing what the corner mutts are saying about you and go out and make your own dreams come true.